A very pleasant good evening, everyone. A rainy evening, I guess you should say, here in central to southern Ohio. I'm Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, where tonight we'll sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and a loss by the Cincinnati Reds this afternoon to the St. Louis Cardinals. Alongside our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. And Mark, we're on just an hour early tonight, so... Most people can sit back and watch Kentucky and Connecticut battle it out for the college basketball supremacy. That's right, and that should be a great game. I don't think anybody, as a matter of fact, I, should, I shouldn't say this, uh, apparently over a 1,000 people of all the millions who turned in their brackets actually had Connecticut playing Kentucky. So somebody figured it out. Uh, it's a lot smarter than me. Yeah, a lot smarter than me, too. I didn't have either one of these two schools, even in the Final Four. Yeah, and I don't think they're the top two teams in the country if they were to play Florida, although Connecticut beat Florida, what, three times this year. So um, maybe they are one of the better teams, but I, I didn't think Kentucky was one of the better teams. And uh, yet here they are. Yep, I, I tend to agree with you. Well, this rainstorm that we're getting, i got to admit, Mark, I'd rather see the rain than the snow after about four months of this snow. And to tell you, the Indians game tonight was rained out against San Diego. Uh, the Padres are, for some reason, and I want to get into this later, Mark, but for some reason, San Diego is coming to Cleveland in the middle of April to play baseball. And I don't understand what Major League Baseball is thinking when they put these schedules together. But nonetheless, tonight's game was rained out, and it will be played as part of a conventional doubleheader on Wednesday at Progressive Field. And that will start at noon because this is the only time San Diego's coming to Cleveland this year. So they got to fit it in somehow. They can't do it day-night because it's getaway day. So they're going to play a conventional doubleheader, which I know just upsets the lords of baseball tremendously when they have to do that, Mark. Yeah, take away a, a gate. And that's all they think about, of course, is the gate. But, and that's, uh, of course, you're on Wednesday afternoon in the middle of the week, Mark, it, it's kind of tough to get a, day, a gate in Cleveland, though. <laughs> well, it's going to be kind of tough to get a gate in Cincinnati if they continue to play the way they're playing. Yeah, let's get into that, Mark. St. Louis beat Cincinnati this afternoon in the Cardinal home opener, 5-3. to Tony Singrani started for the Reds against Michael Waka of the Cardinals. It was Singrani's second start, and it really was, after the first inning, he seemed to settle down and pitch pretty well, but in that first inning, Mark, he gave up a bases-loaded three-run double to Yadier Molina, and that was... Really, for all intents and purposes, all Waka needed against the Reds today. Yeah, Sigrani pitched very well, actually, except for some wildness in the first inning, and he put one over the middle of the plate to Molina. Uh, but again, it's it's remarkable. He's got a streak going that I found almost incomprehensible, that he has pitched in 21 consecutive games as a starter where he has given up less than five hits. That is the first time in Major League history in 100 years since that's been accomplished. And ironically, they are the first 21 games of his career, which makes it all the more unbelievable. So talk about a dominant pitcher. He's never given up in any of his starts 
more than five hits. And you look back at all the great pitchers, Warren Spahn, and uh, you go down the list of the greatest pitchers of all time, Cy Young, all these guys, they never matched that record that Simgrani has. Yeah, that that is an amazing streak. You know, there was another streak that was hit today by the Reds, and it was I, I had a chance to watch the Reds on Major League Baseball Network today, and they had the uh, Cardinal announcers on there. I want to make sure that I get this streak correct. It has to do with Joey Votto and Brandon Phillips. Today's start gave them 788 consecutive starts together, Mark, which is the best ever in Reds history between a pair of players. I did not know that one either. That's that's very interesting. That that is that is a good one. But unfortunately, those two streaks didn't add up to a win for the Reds today, and the hitting woes continue. They seem to not be able to get a a key base hit at a time when they have runners in scoring position, Mark. Let me throw you some numbers because baseball is numbers. And this is why the Reds, in fact, I honestly believe the Reds are lucky. The Reds are 2-5. and five. The only two games they have won are by the scores of 1 to nothing and 2-1. to one. They're 2-5. and five. They should be 0-7 or could easily be 0-7. But here's why. Your, your starting shortstop is now 1 for 23. Your starting right fielder is 4 for 26. Your starting center fielder is 1 for 16. Your reserve outfielder, Bernadina, is 1 for 11. Your reserve shortstop is 0 for 4. That's 7 out of 80, or a 0.87 batting average. On top of which, you have your $225 million first baseman, who is 6 for 26, a 230 batting average, with one RBI and zero home runs. That's why they're lucky they're not 0-7. And well, if they lose the next two games, Dave, they're going to be five games out of first place, ten games into the season. Well, I know going into today's game, let's throw a couple other numbers out there, Mark. Going into today's game... Jay Bruce was leading the team in RBIs with five, but he was only batting 182 going into today's game. But when you take Votto, Bruce, Phillips, and Ludwig and combine them together, those four, the heart of the Reds' order, have combined for only 10 RBIs. And as I said, Bruce has five of them. Yeah, Votto is getting no help. And. People, they're not letting him have anything to hit. And I think he's listening to his critics who said it's better to swing in a bad pitch than to walk. And he looks terrible at the plate. He, he was fooled three or four times today. Uh, it just, it's, th- this team offensively is the weakest Cincinnati Reds team I have seen. I'm trying to think back to the, back in the 60s where they had some really weak offensive teams, but I, I can't remember a team top to bottom, that is this week offensively, and they have to do something. And you and I were talking before we went on the air that one of the things I think they should do is is sign Stephen Drew. They need a bat at shortstop. It's not Cozart. And the problem is, Mark, and we've gone 
sort of hint, hinted around at it, but we haven't really smacked Walt Jockety between the eyes with this. But he's to blame for this. You know, I I, I asked uh, Rodney Newpole last night from St. Louis, or last week from St. Louis, you know, what was Walt Jockety's legacy in St. Louis? You know, Dusty Baker was really the blame. The blame was put on him for last year's loss of the division. And Walt Jockety walked away basically unscathed. But he did nothing during the offseason to help this team out. Absolutely nothing to help this team out as far as trying to get a bat. And that's been the problem with this team now for going on three years. They haven't been able to come up with the big hit when they've needed one. And Walt Jockety is sitting in the general manager's seat, Mark, and not making a deal. What is going on with this guy? I don't know if it's fear or he has defaulted to the position that all he has to do is sign people to big contracts and he's done his job rather than being creative. He signed Bado to this huge contract. He signed uh, he signed a bunch of other guys to big contracts and he has not done anything on a creative basis to make this team any better. So, uh, you know, I'm glad we are on an hour early tonight because it, <laughs> I, I don't have to worry about this 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 game for the rest of the evening. I, I can turn my attention to basketball when the game comes on. But so this team is uh, in bad shape, and I don't know what they're going to do at this point. And they had they had six months of the off season to do something, and they haven't done a darn thing. No, and they haven't. And and I'll tell you what bothered me, Mark, was the approach of how they handled today's game. The one thing that completely befuddled me was Billy Hamilton was at the plate. I believe it was in the sixth inning. And Pena was on first base with two outs. I've got to believe there was a missed sign by somebody because Billy Hamilton took a pitch outside for a ball and Pena was trying to steal second. Now, why in the world against maybe arguably the best catcher in baseball in Yadier Molina. Do you have your backup catcher trying to steal second when you're down by two runs in the sixth inning is beyond me. I assume he took off on his own. I can't believe that came from the bench. Uh, but, again, the Reds with Hamilton in there, in the position he's in leading off, uh, he, he well, he's now one for 16. He's not reaching base. The only steal attempt to get thrown out, he's not living up anywhere near to the expectations that people thought he was going to. And that has a ripple effect through the lineup. But no matter what he did, if you have your you have your shortstop, who you're, you're depending on to hit 260, 270, he's now 1 for 23. Uh, you have Bruce, 4 for 26. Hamilton, one for 16, on and on and on. I mean, you cannot sustain any kind of rally with that many holes in your lineup, and especially if your number four hitter is not producing. But in fairness to Joey, he's not getting an opportunity to, to drive in many runs, and the only run he has driven in came yesterday on a sacrifice fly with the bases loaded and nobody out. Well, you know, the old saying is drastic times lead to drastic measures. And I sort of brought up something to you uh, earlier today that I haven't heard anybody bring up. I, I, know it, I know it's been talked about moving Joey Votto 
to second in the batting order behind Billy Hamilton. But I think they ought to put Phillips third to protect Votto. That that hap- that helps in two reasons, I think, Mark. First of all, Joey Votto, the main complaint against him is he does take too many pitches. And I think just looking at what he did over the weekend against the Mets, I got to see all three games, and then today's game against the Cardinals, he seems to be spreading out his strike zone and going after pitches that he doesn't normally go after. You need somebody behind Hamilton, if he gets on base, that is going to take a lot of pitches and is comfortable doing it. I don't think Brandon Phillips has ever been comfortable in the number two position in the batting order, and I've always thought he would have been a better number three hitter. And I know that's not going to cure all the ills, but at least it's something you can do to jumble the batting order and try to do something to shake the Reds out of this. I'm not sure they have the personnel on their team that they're going to be positively impacted by where they hit. They just don't have a lot of good hitters on this team. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right now, Todd Frazier is hitting the ball well, leads the team in RBIs and hits. But I, I don't have a lot of confidence that that's going to continue the rest of the year. If he were not hitting, if he were doing what he did last year, this team, this team would not have won even two games. And what what is frightening is that by May first, this team could be ten games out of first place, and that is not a stretch. No, it's it's really not. I've got to bring up a couple other things. We're going to talk about the Indians here in just a little bit. We're on an hour early tonight for the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show simply because Kentucky's playing Connecticut coming up in about an hour from now in the NCAA championship game. What about J.J. Hoover, Mark? It seems like every time this guy comes in, it's like pouring gas on a fire. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. He did this last year, too. If you remember, he started off 0 for 5 at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, you know, he threw a, just a, a lousy breaking pitch uh, to Ike, uh, what's his name, of the Mets, and Ike for that Davis. grand slam. But he, he was wild to begin with. And you, you, as a closer, you can't come in and walk a couple guys and then play, the Reds play bad defense. And, again, Joey Votto is off to a terrible start again this year defensively. And that, that is just a conundrum because two years ago he was one of the best first basemen in the league. Last year he – he led first baseman in errors, and this year he's off to a bad start, both in decision-making and fielding, and I, I don't understand it. Uh, I, I don't know what's gotten into his head, and it's it's certainly too soon to panic with this team, even though they're 2-5. and five. There's a lot of games left. Uh, but what can happen is a team like Pittsburgh or St. Louis could get hot, or even Milwaukee, and all of a sudden, like I said, you're 8 or 10 games out in April, and it's, it's essentially over. And if this team doesn't win this year, you've got to think about a complete restructure of this team going into next year. I mean, there's a lot of changes that have to be made. You, if they are playing as poorly as they are now into July and August, you've got to think about a new left fielder. You think, think about a new shortstop, a new center fielder, uh, a new catcher. There's, there's a what lot of holes in this, in this lineup that you've got to, you've got to deal with. And as you said earlier, Walt Jockety seems to be just content to sit on the sidelines and, and write big checks but not do anything creatively. Yeah, you just you just talked, Mark, about a lot of different positions that need help with the Reds. What about GM? 
if the Reds fall completely falter this year, is he the man that's going to be to blame, or are they going to sit back and and blame Brian Price? Well, you can't blame Brian Price. I mean, he's he's dealt a hand here that was dealt to him by Walt Jockety. So yes, at some point you have to look at the general managers and say, what what have you done other than write big checks? So um, I don't know, David. It's uh, it, it's strange this year. I can't say I'm, I'm I'm disappointed because I wrote myself a memo as I always do on, on opening day, and I said, "Here's what's going to happen." For fun, I do it every year, and this is precisely what I said was going to happen. They were going to lose a lot of close games, frustrating games, three to two, two to one, one to nothing. They're going to lose a ton of those games, and they'll win some, but they're going to lose more than they lose. And this team has the capability of, of winning 65 to 70 games this year. And that's, that's, that's a scary thing to say with the pitching they have. They have great pitching, but you've got to have hitting. And they just don't have it right now. Yeah, you, you definitely have to do that. It's like I say in basketball all the time. You can play all the great defense you want, Mark, but you're not going to win a basketball game 2-1. to one. And I know Louis Tiant said a few years ago with the Cleveland Indians when they had great pitching with McDowell and Tiant and the rest of them back in the late 60s, Louis Tiant made the comment, gee, if we give up one run, we tie. If we give up two runs, we get beat. And that's got to be the way the Red starters are thinking now. And that's putting a tremendous amount of pressure, not only on them mentally, but physically. Yeah, Johnny Cueto has pitched outstanding ball his first two starts. has nothing to show for it. And that does get frustrating because you get too fine and you start, you know, trying to groove a uh, a pitch on the outside corner because you're afraid to, to walk somebody for fear it gives up a run. And it takes you out of your game. So the Reds have so much strength in that in that rotation and even in the bullpen when they get everybody back, but it doesn't do any good. If you're not going to score more than one or two runs a game, it, who cares? It doesn't matter how good your pitching is. Well, you're worried about the Reds and their hitting. And after the first six games of the season, Mark, I guess when I'm looking at the Cleveland Indians, they've got completely the opposite problem. Their starting pitching has not been very good at all. Since opening night last Monday night when Justin Masterson twirled a gem for the Indians against Oakland and still got beat, the Indians have had five consecutive subpar performances, including Justin Masterson yesterday, by starting pitchers. So I guess I'm going to pose the question to you. As worried as you are about the Reds hitting, should I be as worried about the Indians starting rotation after the first week? The only difference between those two issues, I think, frankly, it's easier to go out and get a hitter to fix your lineup that isn't hitting than to go get a starting pitcher or two to help your rotation or a, you know, a lockdown bullpen guy. I think it's harder to go find pitching. So if the Reds do make a move, number one, they got some tools to to move with, and the Indians, if they're if they're you know this is again the first week here, we shouldn't be over negative, but if their pitching woes continue into May, it's going to be awfully hard to fix the rotation. I think you can fix an offense if you, if you have some guts and, and some brains, you can fix it. There are hitters out there that are available. But the Indians, if they have a pitching problem, it's going to be harder to fix. Yeah, and, and I would agree with you, Mark, especially in April. 
in the middle of Cleveland. They've played three games against Minnesota. They lost two out of three against the Twins. They probably should have won at least two out of, of those three ball games. But when you're looking at temperatures that are 30, 35 degrees and, and a misty, rainy day, it, it's hard for a pitcher to actually concentrate out there on the mound, i got to think. Sure it is. And, but it's, it's just as hard for the hitters. I think when this terrible weather, you know, befalls a <laughs> baseball game. But again, I think the, it's a little early for the, the Indians fans to be that concerned, I think, because they do have good pitching in Cleveland. What, what is the difference is the Reds hitting has never been there. They've, over the last three years, they've gotten by on pitching. The offensive has always been weak. And it was weak last year. We, we predicted it was going to be weak this year. They would have won two World Series had they had an extra bat or two. And they didn't. So I, I think the Indians, uh, they have a good offense. They, they hit the ball. They keep the ball in play. They don't strike out a whole lot. Uh, they get decent defense. And I think that pitching is going to come around. So uh, if I had to bet on it in an over-under, I'd take the Indians to win more games right now, the way the teams are structured, than the Reds will this year. Well, and the Indians have a very interesting uh, dilemma coming up here, probably by the end of this week, Mark. Niger Morgan, who is just simply a, a signed to a contract out of the Japanese League earlier this spring by the Indians, made the team. Mark, he's looking very, very good for the Indians in center field in that leadoff position. He's hitting three oh eight. He's got a five hundred on base percentage, six walks three runs scored, and he's looking like the Niger Morgan of old with one exception. The attitude, Mark, is gone out of this guy. He's a team-first ball player now, and it's showing not only on the field but off the field in the clubhouse. Well, he can be a, a very positive influence on the field, no question. He, he's, he's an exciting player, and I think Indians fans, if they give him a break, they'll warm up to him. Uh, he was one of those guys I heard that everybody on the opposing team hated him, but he was a he was a well liked, uh, you know, affable guy in in the clubhouse, and he puts on a show sometimes, not unlike Brandon Phillips. But I, I think the Indians really got a coup when they got Nigel Morgan. I think he can help them, and I think he will help them this year. Well, now here's their dilemma: Michael Bourne is down in Columbus on his rehab stint. Uh, depending upon what he did tonight, I don't know if they even played in Columbus tonight, Mark, or not, but I'm thinking he'll probably be back with the team, barring any unforeseen circumstances, by Friday when they're home against the White Sox. So what do the Indians do, especially with Jason Giambi coming back here in probably a couple of weeks? I wonder what's going to happen when Bourne and Giambi do come back onto the roster, what that's going to do to Niger Morgan or what it could completely do to Elliot Johnson. The Indians got a couple of developments here that they've got to uh, address roster-wise, and I'm not sure what they're thinking or what they think they're going to do. I'd be surprised if Giambi is on that team by the end of the year. Uh, I, I think he, he, he served his purpose for that team last year, got him into the playoffs. Uh, he's, a, he's a good guy. But what is he, 43? Uh, what is he going to lend to this team long-term? Nothing. Short-term, maybe. But coming back off an injury, even though it wasn't that severe, 
uh, he, I just don't see him being able to hit over 210, 220 this year, and that's not the kind of bench play you, you, you'd like. Now, they could put him as a coach and keep him on the bench, uh, but I'm sure he won't do that. He, he probably thinks he can still play. But in answer to your question, I think he's the odd man out because of his age. And I would tend to agree with you there, Mark. I think the Indians are probably going to try to keep him on the disabled list as long as they possibly can. Now, the Indians seem to be back to their old ways, though, the front office. They signed Jason Kipnis to an extension last week, six years, $52 million. Now they've got signed up Jan Gomes, Michael Brantley, to long-term contracts. Mark, they virtually have everybody on this team except for one signed up to long-term contracts through the 2016 season, but that one guy is Justin Masterson, and they just seem to be at loggerheads with each other. The Indians will not budge, and Masterson keeps coming back with a different proposal, it seems, weekly, and the Indians just won't budge. They've got everybody signed up, signed, sealed, and delivered, except for this guy. And my contention is, Mark, if he's their ace, and I'm not the one saying he's their ace, they're the ones, and Francona are the ones that is saying Masterson is the ace and the horse of the staff. You got to sign this guy. Well, you do, maybe, because you have to ascertain what is he going to cost you long term. And this will be a very interesting comparison because the Reds went out and I think overpaid for Homer Bailey, uh, who was a under 500 pitcher last year. He's barely 500 in his career. He does have two no hitters, but he's been, you know, he has not been the stopper or the number one guy, but yet he signed. A $100 million contract for, for what, six years, I think. <clears throat> that is a lot of money to put into a guy that has not been all that productive. Now, if you were a manager and you had to win one game, would you? and you had your choice, you could start Masterson or Bailey. Who would you start? Masterson. Me too. Exactly right. And if that's the case, and if everybody else feels that way, and Homer Bailey is worth $100 million, what is Masterson worth? And the strange thing is, Mark, he's not asking for that kind of money. He's asking in the area of 14 to $16 million over three to four years. Well, I mean, I think we've <laughs> the Indians have to make that, that, that determination. If he's their number one guy, then he's probably worth more money than Bailey. So if they sign him for what he's asking, it seems to me to be a bargain. But they may not; they may see something we don't see. I, I don't know what it is. But what is he? Twenty six years old? Uh, no, he's twenty nine. Twenty? Okay, he's twenty nine. He's still he's coming into his prime, thirty to thirty three. You know, he should be at, at top of his game. So I, I don't know what their hesitancy is, other than. Do you do you wrap up that kind of money into a guy who hasn't really had a you know he's had a breakout year I mean he clearly had a good year last year but he hasn't won twenty games he hasn't led the league in ERA he hasn't you know accomplished those kinds of things he hasn't won a Cy Young so how much money of your payroll do you put into one guy the Reds have opted to put a hell of a lot of money into three or four guys which means they have a weak bench they have they have weak secondary players. 
and which is why they haven't won the big game. Well, and, and my contention is they are saving so much money with Brantley, Gomes, and Kipnis. These guys, I mean, they're they're getting six to ten million dollars a year, and these are supposed to be the heart of your ball club. Those three players. Granted, I think the front office has done a great job with these guys, but I also think the front office has got to make the commitment to the guy that they're calling their ace and show the fans of Cleveland that that the ownership is in this thing to win it. Hey, if they could sign Masterson for $16 million a year, I agree with you. They've got to get this thing done. They don't have anybody else, not in the minors, Mark, not on the major league team, that they could consider anywhere near an ace. Masterson's got to be it. And when you, I want to bring up something else, too, because I just noticed it uh, scrolling across the bottom here while Major League Network is going on. Ubaldo Jimenez is looking like he was well worth that $13, $14 million a year that Baltimore signed him to in the first two starts, isn't he? I haven't seen what he's done. Oh, he's looking terrible. He only pitched four and a third innings today against the Yankees and gave up four runs. I'm telling you, this guy is a contract hit killer. I saw he got hit around his first start. I didn't. I, I, I've forgotten by whom, but um, you've said this all along, and you've seen him play more than I have. You, you know, you look at what a guy did like that. He had one good year. In fact, it was one half of one year. What was it in 2010, mm-hmm. where he was 14 and one the first half of the year? He's not done anything since then. And you called it before the season started. You said. Number one, I hope the Indians don't sign him. And number two, watch him have a lousy year because he's not in a contract year. And so far, you're right. You know, I've also got to ask you, Mark, looking at there, – there's one team, I think, that is very, very close to starting to dump players, even after the first week, and that's Philadelphia. They're 3-3, three and three, same record as the Indians. They're a game and a half out of the first place in the National League East. Same as the Indians in the American League Central. Game and a half out. But realistically, when you look at Philadelphia, they are not going to be up there in the upper echelon with Washington this year. They're just not. And Atlanta is looking a heck of a lot better than I think anybody else thought that they were going to look this year. How long do you think it's going to be before Philadelphia decides, eh, it's time to unload these guys? Well, I think the time is now, but who's going to take those contracts? There's nobody there that you you would want for the for the contracts they have. Who would you want off that team that you could afford? Chase Utley. Chase Utley's making a heck of a lot of money. He's injury prone, and he's what thirty four, thirty five years old. Yeah, so, he is. You know, I I don't know if any team out there is willing to step up. And, and go after – if he was a one-year rental, maybe, but he's got a long-term contract. Most of those Phillies do. So I don't know where you, you dump these guys if you, if you intend to dump them. And, you know, you, you mentioned Atlanta, and <clears throat> they remind me of the Cardinals in terms of an organization. Every year they contend. They might have one year where they're, they're out of it, but every year they contend. And it's because they have a deep organization – and you contrast that with what I heard last this this morning about the Cincinnati Reds. The Reds last year had the worst minor league record in baseball. Of 30 teams, their combined record was the worst. 
every team had a losing record. And, you know, you talk about pitching and depth and opportunities and all these things. The Reds don't have one position player that could come up and help this team. It's a frightening, it's, it's a frightening thought of, of what could happen to this team. And I was looking at the Indians. Indians have a much stronger farm system than the Reds do. So while you can, you know, complain rightly about where the Indians are or where they should be, they seem to be in a much better position than the Reds going forward the next two or three years. And two years ago, we were complaining, I was complaining that the Indians' farm system was in shambles, and, and most people agreed with me, and the Reds' farm system was in great shape. And if you remember one thing that Rodney Newpole said last week from com when we had him on the show, and we were talking to him about Walt Jockety again, and he said one of the legacies that Walt Jockety left with the Cardinals was he leaned too much on the veteran players and ignored the farm system. Yep. Yep, I, I, I remember that vividly. And, and t- today's article in the Dayton Daily News talked about the Reds' farm system and what shambles it's in now. And the Dayton Dragons, as an example, they're, they're a team. Uh, they've only had three winning seasons in, I think, what, 15 years? <laughs> That's hard to believe. And it's based on if it's an A team, it's because the, the, the team, the, the Reds, the parent organization, are signing weak players. They're not bringing in studs to to augment their their farm system, and they have guys who you know Duran and, and some other guys who are supposed to be the future of this team. They're still in a ball after four or five years. These guys are not going to make it, and they've they've gone out and gotten some great pitching. But their farm system of the last two years was was headed up by Singrani, Frazier, and Hamilton. Those were the three guys, and and they've all come up. And Cozart, they've all come up, and um, there's nothing left on the shelf. So you you can't if you're going to make a trade, you have to trade from your existing roster, your your 40 man or your 25 man roster, and that's dangerous because you're going to weaken yourself somehow. Well, you know, we have had Trent Rosencrantz on our show from the Cincinnati Inquirer, the Reds beat reporter. We've had Mo Egger from ESPN 1530 down there in Cincinnati. Uh, we've had, um, oh, now I can't remember his, uh, McAllister. Lance McAllister. Um, Lance McAllister on the show also. But I guess I've got to ask the question, Mark, because I don't get an opportunity to listen to these guys on a regular basis like a lot of other Reds fans do. Is Jockety getting a pass on this, or are they actually trying to put the pressure on this guy and and making him the scapegoat, making him explain why he's not doing anything? I think scapegoat is the wrong term. I think it's, it's the responsible person. It's the responsible entity. Somebody makes those decisions about who the players are that, that go in the field. It's not the manager. The manager is given a roster and told, go win. Now, Dusty Baker did win. He won. He got in the playoffs three of the last four years. This team, uh, you know, Dusty may have left at the right time. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. But my fault with Dusty was, strategically, I thought he was a very weak bench manager. Uh, he, he was a good guy in terms of keeping morale up in the clubhouse. But I don't know if you saw today, Joey Votto, you can see the frustration in Joey Votto. 
Uh, he slammed the, 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 the ball down a couple times after the third out in the inning. He, he slammed the bat down. He, he's ticked off he's not per- performing, and certainly ticked off he's not getting any help. And, um, you know, Jay Bruce, he'll hit you 25, 30 home runs, drive in 90 to 100 runs a year, but he has so many opportunities to drive in more runs, and he strikes out at such an alarming rate. Uh, he's never going to be a great player. He's going to be a serviceable player. He'll put up some big numbers because he'll play till he's 40. But, you know, he's not the kind of guy that can, can lead a team to victory. He just, he's too inconsistent. And you have to have somebody protect Joey Votto. And if you don't, why do you have Votto? Trade Votto. I, you know, because there's nobody there to protect him. I, I agree with you, Mark. You know, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir on this one. And while we sit back and we wonder why the Reds are not doing anything, the Indians today actually made a couple of deals. Granted, they were minor league deals, but I want to let everybody know what the Indians did do today. They sent right-hander Preston Gilmay to Baltimore for utility man Torsten Boss. And then yesterday they traded left-hander Colt Hines to the Los Angeles Dodgers for right-hander Duke Von Schaman. And like Gilmay, Hines was designated for assignment. Now, I'm not sure we're going to see Torsten Boss or Duke Von Schaman on the Indians anytime soon. But still, the Indians are doing something. Meanwhile, Walt Jackety is sitting in the corner office of Great American Ballpark, and it appears to probably a lot of Reds fans like he's just sitting there twiddling his thumbs. Well, it doesn't appear. Name the deals he made this year. There you go. There you go. <laughs> he hasn't yeah. made any. Nothing of nothing note. He brought in Pena, uh, but, uh, you know, he, he's a secondary catcher. Uh, they did get Mesoraco back today, and uh, Tucker Barnhart was sent down. But, again, those aren't going to be moves that, that are going to prove meaningful. When, you know, the, the way to look at this is look at the teams around the league that are powerful teams that have a chance to win. Look at the Dodger lineup. The Dodgers have, their number seven hitter is probably better than the Reds' number four hitter. And, and mm-hmm. look, at, look, look at Atlanta, the depth they have in their lineup. Uh, look at Boston. The teams that, that are really good offensively, teams that have a chance to win, the Cardinals, uh, they're so much better than the Reds. It's, it's, it's not just one player. It's two or three or four players better. And that you can't compete like that. The Reds just cannot beat good pitching. They will not beat good pitching. And they'll beat mediocre pitching. But this team, it scares me where they could end up. And if I were on the fence to be an Indians or Reds fan this year, I have to say grudgingly that I'd say, folks, go for the Indians. I think the Reds are going to break your heart. Well, and I brought up Ubaldo Jimenez just a few minutes ago, Mark. I'm going to bring up somebody else that... I thought wasn't worth the money that Oakland gave him. Scott Casimir signed a two-year deal for $22 million, $11 million a year. But I'll tell you what, as much as I complain about Ubaldo Jimenez in his first two starts, Scott Casimir has made two starts this year. He's 2-0. and And today, he beat Minnesota. He went six innings, gave up six hits, 
gave up three earned runs and struck out five. But Kazmir is making me believe he may have been worth that $11 million a year. And he's left-handed. Well, he's left-handed, and he's also a guy that will thrive in that ballpark, the A's ballpark. It's meant for a fly ball pitcher, and he doesn't have the stuff he used to have. He still throws hard, but he's the kind of guy who can really benefit from a big ballpark like that. And there's a lot of big ballparks in the West. So I think that the, he, he signed with the right team, and this guy, he could have a heck of a year this year. Yeah, he he really could. Let me let me go over the scores here today real quick and then I want to get into some major league notes that uh, we've got for tonight's ball game. Let's take a look at some of the final scores. As I said, the A's beat the Twins 8 to 3. It was uh the Cardinals as we also said beating the Reds 5 to 3 this afternoon. The Angels over the Astros 9 to 1. The Yankees beat the Orioles 4 to 2. And then there were two rainouts. The Indians, of course, were rained out against San Diego, and the Brewers were rained out tonight against the Philadelphia Phillies. Mark, you know, I, I guess I don't want to get on my soapbox about this, but I've got to ask, this weekend, San Francisco was playing in Los Angeles against the Dodgers, while the Indians were playing in Cleveland against Minnesota, and Detroit was playing in Detroit against Baltimore. Now, tonight, the Indians are rained out playing San Diego in the middle of April, as I said at the top of the show, in Cleveland. I know you and I have discussed this before, but why in the world are Midwestern teams in the middle of April playing at home, and the California teams are either heading out west or they're playing each other? These guys should be playing Midwestern teams. Matter of fact, the Indians in just a couple of weeks go out to San Francisco to play the Giants. Why didn't they make that a road trip to play the Giants and play San Diego, especially with the Indians opening up in Oakland last week? They could have went to San Francisco this weekend and played San Diego in San Diego this week and probably gotten all these games in. I, I don't have the answer. I wish I did. It's one of those conundrums where either they they don't think about it or every, everything is so computerized that it just comes out of the ether uh, you know, based on who's going to be playing whom, and, and it, they don't care about when. It, that has to be the answer. That, that it has to be a computerized approach to schedule making. Because, as you just stated, if you gave it any thought at all, you wouldn't have Cleveland playing or Detroit playing home games in April, where games have been snowed out. Even in mid-April, they've been snowed out. So you, you, I don't have an answer for you, Dave. It, it's a yeah, it's a conundrum. For Major League Baseball, I I get that, but I would think that they would want to do this because playing games in the middle of April or at the beginning of April in Cleveland is just not good. Mark, okay, I want to run a couple of numbers. We ran some numbers by our fans earlier, and I want to talk about the umpiring in Major League Baseball, primarily the strike zone and the replay rule after week one. And I'm going to throw a couple things out at you. After week one, this was Sunday through Sunday, there were 20 challenges in the first week of baseball, Mark. Eight were overturned. The quickest review happened in the Cleveland-Oakland game on opening night, Monday night, and it was one minute, nine seconds. The longest review, Major League Baseball wouldn't disclose how long it was. All they said was, 
It was almost five minutes. So after week one of the review rule in effect, your thoughts on it? I'm all for it. <clears throat> I don't think baseball games are too long. I think what are too, is too long are the commercials. If you go back and look at what <laughs> baseball games, I'm serious. If you go back and look at what baseball games are being played 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they actually have game times. If you go on MLB.com, you can go back to 1900 and they'll tell you how long a game was. The baseball games are not longer. It is The commercials have gone from 30 seconds to two and a half minutes. That's what makes it longer. And I would rather have a game, if it takes five minutes to get the right call, I'm all for it because that's going to be an outlier. That's not going to happen very often. It's usually going to take a minute and a half to two minutes, which is probably less time than you'd have a manager complaining and getting thrown out and screaming at the umpire and all that stuff. So I'm all for it. Uh, it can it can be abused, obviously, but if they had 40%, you said they were 8 for 20 in turnovers, that means that th th those games were called correctly. And, and to me, that's far more important to have an extra minute or two. And if they're so concerned, cut down the commercial time from two and a half minutes to one and a half minutes between innings. That'll save you 12 to 15 minutes per game. You're right, and here's an added, here's an added note. On the first week, no ejections, no managerial ejections, no player ejections. Matter of fact, you've seen people act more like more gentlemanly in the first week of Major League Baseball than I think we've ever seen managers and ball players act towards umpires in the history of the game. Yeah, and I think it makes the umpires it gives them some oh, I don't know a safety net because nothing is worse. Like the guy who made, you know, Jim Joyce who made the call on the no-hitter or the perfect game. I mean, the guy said he couldn't sleep for a month, and I, I don't doubt it. And I'm sure he would have welcomed replay because everybody screws up at some point, and you'd hate to have a pennant or a World Series, you know, be determined on a bad call, especially when the umpire knows he made the bad call. So, Like the I'm 85 Series? What's that? Like the 85 series, St. Louis yes. and Kansas City? That's right. Deniker, he made the wrong call and, and cost him the World Series. And, you know, it, it can happen. So I'm all for the playoffs or the uh, the instant replay. I don't think it, it, it's going to add one iota to the time. But, again, if you cut the commercials, everybody's happy except, I guess, the stations. But just charge more money for less time. Everybody will pay it. Mark, what drives you more up a wall? The commercials in a baseball game or the commercials during the NCAA college basketball tournament that we're watching that will end tonight? Well, you didn't add the third one, which is even more frustrating to me, which is NFL football. Oh, uh, yeah. The commercials they have there are just obscene. And if you've ever gone to an NFL game, you, <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing. They'll have three minutes of commercials between plays, and then there's a – uh, you know, a punt, and they do it three more minutes. It, it's just mm -hmm. unbelievable. Yeah, TV, for all its bringing us the games, it just ruins the momentum of a game. And NCAA is a perfect example. I don't, I, I haven't timed it uh, like I did with baseball, but I remember about five or six years ago timing a football game, and I actually had a stopwatch, and I was, I was in bed. I had torn a a calf muscle, and I just got out of the hospital, 
and I had nothing else to do, and I was watching a football game, so I had a stopwatch with me, and I timed the actual action of a football game. It was like 11 minutes. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Between the commercials and the dead time and, the you know, the 30 seconds between plays and all that stuff, it's the least action of any sport in, in of all sports. But NCAA, they, they certainly take advantage of a huge audience, and I'm sure they're making billions on it. About a month ago, I watched a hockey game. I don't remember who it was. I believe it was Pittsburgh and Boston, but don't hold me to this. But I remember the first period, Mark, there was not a whistle blown by the official. There was not a stoppage of play. There were no face-offs. There were no penalties, nothing from the opening face-off of that game until there was five minutes and 52 seconds left to go in that opening period. And I remember the announcers of that game. It had to be Boston because I remember it was the Boston announcers. They were going nuts over the fact that they were already three commercial breaks behind. (laughs) No stoppages. It was great to watch. It was fun to watch it. You know, there's a poll going on right now, Mark. I want to bring this up to you before I get to this umpire survey. There's a poll going on right now on Major League Baseball Network. Who is the best young starter in the National League Central Division? And they give you four choices. Is it Tony Singrani, Garrett Cole of Pittsburgh, Shelby Miller of St. Louis, or Michael Waka of St. Louis? What's your vote? Michael Waka. Like Waka, that guy's tough, isn't he? Yeah, Waka is so tough, and uh, I, th- I think Singrani uh, might be second on that list, but th- those are two young guys that are going to face each other a ton of times in the next 10 or 15 years. But uh, the Cardinals just have a tremendous young pitching staff, and I'm not sure the Reds uh, you know, can keep can keep up with them but uh, pitching-wise, but uh, th- those those teams have two very, very good young p- pitchers in, in, in Waka and Uh, Okay, there was an article written just a few days ago by Rob Nevin. I'm going to try to get this guy on from Fox Sports. And it talks about an essay written by Braden King and Jerry Kim, Mark. And it it talks about uh, a survey. Uh, Actually, it was an, an... They basically went out and watched umpires and watched films of umpires in the 2008 and 2009 season. And what they did was they examined the strike zone calls from umpires, which included more than 700,000 pitches. And they come to this conclusion that roughly 14% of non-swinging strikes, taken pitches, were called incorrectly. Now, this article gets into a lot of other things, including racism, which I don't even want to get into that tonight. But I did find a couple of things interesting that I wanted to get your opinion on, being that you're a former pitcher. Here's the first one. Umpires don't like calling a strike on an 0-2 count. Yeah, I think that's true. As a matter of fact, when I when, when I was hitting, I, and, and let's say that the umpire called a, a really close pitch at 1-0, called it a strike, and I said, hey, would you call that with two strikes? And most of them would say, honestly, no, probably wouldn't. And I remember the catcher asking the same thing. If I, you know, the catcher might say the same thing on a close pitch. Hey, Ump, would you call that a strike? Oh, and two. And the Ump said, Nah, probably wouldn't. So, you yeah, know, I think they they are count sensitive. Uh, 
based on what the count is, they may make a call one way or another. So I, I agree with that. Here's two more. They really don't like calling a ball on a 3-0 and count. Um, I, I've seen, yeah, I, as a hitter, again, I, I've been amazed sometimes on a 3-0 pitch, and maybe the pitcher doesn't even want to come into me at 3-0, and and it'll be clearly be a ball, and an umpire call a strike. Um, and, you know, you just look at him and what are you, what are you what are you thinking? But you're right, I, I agree with that. And here's the third. They seem to miss a lot more pitches in the ninth inning of a close game than in the first inning. In other words, they choke. I don't know if they choke or not. I think it's that same thing. They will call that they are situation sensitive to the pitch. They In the ninth inning, they will make a pitcher throw a strike. It has to be a, a, a really good strike. And if it's a close game... Uh, they're not going to give a pitcher the outside corner on the black many times. They're going to they're, they're going to want the hit the hitter to hit and the pitcher to pitch. <clears throat> so they don't want a game to end on a walk. And in many cases, the the umps don't want to be put in a position where they have to call ball four on a close pitch three and two to win a game or to tie a game in the ninth inning. So they don't want to get that far. They want they want it to be determined by the hitter and pitcher before it gets down to the umpire having to make a decision that could cost a game. And in summary, at the very end of this article, Mark, and I agree with this, it says that you have to consider that major league pitchers are really, really good and they're trained to aim for the edges of the strike zone and also consider that major league hitters are taking more close pitches than ever throughout the history of the game, all of which means lots of marginal pitches traveling at high speeds or with hellacious movement, and even the best umpires on the planet are going to miss some of the close ones. Yeah, the late movement, you talked about Michael Waka. His fastball moves eight or nine inches in the last ten feet. It's his fastball. He has a four-seamer that, that cuts and moves and He's got a two-seamer that darts down away from the hitter. And these are fastballs. And that, that used to be the amount of break you'd see with a breaking ball <laughs> back in the day. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the pitchers are much, much better. The hitters are much, much better. And I think baseball players today are better than they've ever been just because of the physical skills they have. I think you bring in a guy today who was a star back in the 30s and 40s, and I don't think they would – they even compete with the talent that's out there today. You know, moving on to a couple other items quickly before we wrap up tonight's show on Ohio Baseball Weekly. Mark, we really haven't discussed Derek Jeter and this being his uh, final season. And today was his final home opener. Uh, I think it had to be extremely touching for him, uh, being that this will be his final home opener at Yankee Stadium. And don't, and don't forget... He he's the last ball player that the Yankees have that is even tied with old Yankee Stadium. That's right. You know, one one fact about him that people don't know, the Reds had a chance to draft him, and they passed. <laughs> and I've forgotten, I think it was Chad Matola or somebody like that, somebody who didn't work out. 
uh, they passed to, to in that they they had a chance to get Jeter, but uh, imagine had the Reds had Jeter and Larkin, one would have played second, one would have played short. The Reds would have won a lot of World Series. Yeah, they they definitely would have. Hey, we're going to get more into Derek Jeter coming down later this year, but I do have to ask you about the Matt Adams situation in Cincinnati last week, Mark, where he pushed the fan in the stands. Your thoughts on that, and did he deserve a fine or a suspension? I don't know. You know, I I saw the play. Uh, it's hard to understand what was going on at the time, what was said, all those things, and um, it's a tough call. And I think, by and large, I understand he's a pretty good guy. But uh, I don't know what 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 prompted all that. But um, you know, it it, it happened, and um, it's it's going to be around an albatross around his neck for a long time. Yeah, it it definitely is. Well, the Reds, they've got St. Louis coming up tomorrow night, and then Wednesday afternoon. I really think, Mark. I know this is early in the season. I know it's only week two, but I think the Reds have to do something uh, uh, in these next two ball games to show St. Louis that they're not going to roll over and play dead. As I said, uh, the Reds run a real risk. They've got Chicago and Pittsburgh coming up. The Reds could be out of this division in two weeks. and We could be talking here two weeks from tonight, and the Reds could be eight or nine games out of first place in April. So you're right. It's not too early to panic. Uh, and people say, oh, it's early, plenty of time to come back. That's that's BS, because if you're eight or nine games, ten games out of first place in April, your season is over, and you can have all the comeback stories you want. It, 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 it's one chance in a million a team is going to come back. So you're right. It's the, the Reds have to win at least one of these next two games, and preferably two. And, and it doesn't get any easier after St. Louis, Mark. They've got Thursday off, but then... Tampa Bay comes to Cincinnati for a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon game, and then they've got Pittsburgh coming in the beginning of next week. That's right, and Pittsburgh, you know, is playing great ball. And, and I've, I've said from the beginning of the year, or even in the off season, this team is 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 a tough team, and they're going to be good. So the Reds have their hands full. And uh, what's up with Cleveland coming up? They have got. San Diego now tomorrow night, and then they've got the conventional doubleheader with them at Progressive Field beginning at noon. Then Thursday is off, but the White Sox come to town Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I don't think the Indians are going to know what to do when they don't have a fourth game against the White Sox because they always have a four-game series against the White Sox, but this this week they don't. It's just a three-game series. Then they're off Monday, and then they go to Motown, Mark, next week. They've got Detroit Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of next week. Hey, Dave, before we get off, I, I wanted to point out one thing. You mentioned the time of the games, and uh, I, wanted, I wanted to mention that the fastest game in Major League history, and I forget the date, but it was in the, it was in the 1920s or 1910s, was 51 minutes. That was the, the shortest baseball game of all time. The average number of commercials in minutes that are run in a Major League Baseball game are 45 so back in the day, the, the game would have had to have been played in six minutes if 
if you have today's commercials that are adding to the, the length of a baseball game. So you fans out there are complaining about the length of baseball games. It's not the baseball player's fault. It's the two and a half minutes between each half inning that is the fault. Absolutely. Okay, going to put you on the spot. Before we sign off, Kentucky or Connecticut? i got to go with Kentucky. I said it uh, last week and the week before that they I thought they were the team to beat. And uh, I, I, nothing has convinced me otherwise. How about you? I'm going with Connecticut. Gonna, I'm going to take Connecticut. I'm going to rue this pick, I know. Ten, ten million dollars, I will bet you. <laughs> All right, Mark. Hey, we'll see you next Monday night. Hopefully we've got a lot more interesting stuff to talk about the Reds and the Indians next week. And if I lose, it's going to be a dollar a year for ten million years. There we go. Yeah, I, I can see this now. You and your casket doing the show. <laughs> All right, Mark. We'll see you next week. Have a good one, Dave. Don't forget our show will be back at the regularly scheduled time of 9 o'clock next Monday night, and I'll be on the show Ultimate Sports Talk Thursday night at 7 o'clock. So be sure to join us then. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our producer. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Enjoy the basketball game, everybody. We'll be back next week. Until then, good night.